Welcome to Tomorrow Matters Today. I'm Ray Pittman, CEO and President of CBRE Pacific. In this podcast series, we talk to different guests to explore futuristic ideas and concepts shaping the real estate market. Our goal is to uncover new ideas and challenge the status quo to ensure we are all better positioned in a rapidly changing business world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Colleen Pentland-Lally from CBRE's Boston office. Colleen is one of our resident experts on the multifamily sector, also known in Australia as Build to Rent. In the U.S., the multifamily sector has grown to be the country's second largest property asset class, with a total capital value now of $2 trillion. With Australia seen as a new frontier, we invited Colleen down under to talk to our clients and to speak at the recent PCA Congress in Cairns. Colleen, welcome to Sydney. You've had a busy schedule. You've seen clients. You've talked to our people. You've been on newscasts. What's your view of the market so far? So it's an interesting time in the build-to-rent multifamily market in Australia right now. Uh, I think there's a lot going on as far as interest in the market, interest in moving the market forward and developing multifamily assets in Australia. But there's a lot that has to be sorted out with government policy and mindset as to what multifamily means in Australia and to the investors and to the, the tenants in this market. This is obviously a very mature asset class in the U.S., $2 trillion worth of product developed. What have been the catalyst to seeing that product type develop over the last 30, 40 years in the U.S.? So it's an interesting question. We have a long history of multifamily development from starting in the 60s and 70s when it was a very private business, private debt, private investors, private developers. There was no institutional capital in the market at all. There were no REITs. There was a perception of headline risk for institutional investment into this market, the kind of seeing throwing widows and orphans onto the streets mentality, um, which we know is not really the case in this sector. So it took a real estate boom, a real estate bust throughout the 1980s before in the late 1980s, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac emerged as the stable, abundant debt capital in the U.S. multifamily sector. Along with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac emerging to provide stable debt capital to the market, REITs emerged as a segment. We got scale of multi-housing in the United States, and the institutional investors uh, saw this as a legitimized sector and started to invest um, in multifamily in the U.S. So um, due to that, starting in about 1995-ish, we saw the merchant builders come into the market and the institutional investment come into the market and the quality of multifamily construction and multifamily product improved significantly. And from that point through to the Great Recession was the largest expansion period in U.S. history for multifamily. The beauty of multifamily and the abundant debt capital is that we were the first to emerge out of the recession. So coming out in 2009, 2010, out of that downturn, we were the first out of the gate that investments recovered. There was readily available debt capital for the market. And we saw another period of expansion from about 2010 to present. We're now in a mature end of the cycle, but it has been the longest period of recovery and expansion in multifamily history. Hmm. And so who are the investors in the asset class today? And how do they see the multifamily product? Is this a 
a core part of their portfolio at this point? Is it seen as an alternate asset class, like a storage facility or retirement care? How do they look at that, and how do they look at the risk-to-reward ratio for this asset class? Multifamily sits right alongside um, office, industrial, retail, and hotels as the core five food groups of real estate. Actually, it's the number two asset class for institutions and their portfolios. I think it's about 23% of institutional portfolios is multifamily. Um, So it is an accepted asset class um, in the real estate investment profile and allocations for multifamily institutional investors. Well, this asset class has gotten bigger and bigger in the U.S. It's a part of core portfolios now. It's a $2 trillion asset class today. Does that mean Americans have given up on the American dream? Do they no longer pursue home ownership? And what, what do we see in the future in Australia? Are Australians going to have to give up the Australian dream of home ownership to move into this type of a product? The American dream is not dead, and the Australian dream is not dead. We are looking at our rental cohort as the millennial generation. The millennials today are between the age of 22 and 37. So half of them are now over the age of 30. And a lot of money has been spent on a great deal of research about millennials. And what we have found about millennials is that they are actually young human beings. They will buy houses. They will get married. They will have children. So they're just doing that later in life. So everything's being delayed for this newer generation, the millennials, and and likely the Gen Z that's coming behind them. It's also a massive population. So the millennial generation is about 10% bigger than Gen X ahead of them and Gen Z behind them. But it's about the same size, I, I believe, as the baby boom generation that's up ahead. So one interesting point about the millennial population right now is the U.S. birth rate for women aged 30 to 35 for the first time in U.S. history is higher than the birth rate for women aged 25 to 29. And that's very significant. That's a significant indicator that we are pushing all of these decisions and and all of these actions later. So this is still our renter cohort. They're staying in rental housing longer. And many of these millennials were in high school, give or take, when the Great Recession occurred and the major housing crisis occurred in the U.S. So it's not that this American dream is over. They still aspire to have children and move out and buy the the house in the suburbs and have the two and a half kids and the dog and the picket fence, but they don't see that as their forever investment, their generational wealth, because we now know that that might not be the case. But this population will end up in that. But we know that we have a longer runway. The youngest ones being 22, we know that they're going to stay in the renter cohort longer. The interesting thing, too, about the empty nesters is they're also coming back into the renter population. The empty nesters, or the baby boomers, are between the age of 55 and 70. So the average age that an American moves into a nursing home is 85. So these folks that on the higher end of that population might be selling the three, four, 5,000 square foot home, wanting to move back into an urban area where there's culture and opportunity for entertainment. They have the summer home on the Cape or in Florida. They are moving into rental in some cases. And if 1% of that population chooses to rent, then that's about 300,000 new renter households per year just coming from the empty nester 
population. Not to mention that the average retirement account for the American population is $35,000. So you also have the other end of the spectrum that might need to sell that $150,000 home to fund their retirement and move into a rental community. Hmm. So young people are starting families later. They're pursuing home ownership later, but they're still pursuing it. How does affordability play into that? Affordability is a big issue in a lot of the Australian cities where young people just simply can't afford to buy a home. How has that played in to the growth of the American market, and do you see that having a big impact here? It's interesting now that I've been here for a week um, and certainly spending the weekend in Sydney and getting a fairly good understanding of the housing market here. It's extraordinarily unaffordable, uh, shockingly unaffordable, I would say, for an American. So in my mind, every major first world city in the world has an affordability issue. We don't build workforce housing. So in many cities, there's plenty of social housing. But when you talk about workforce housing, no one builds that. When you say we, you mean the development industry around the world. It doesn't really typically develop that. You know, you don't. And unless there's some government incentive to do so, you can't really afford because of land values in the major cities where the affordability is the strongest or there's more of an affordability crisis. The developers can't afford to build to a class B asset. So it would be very difficult, although we we do see in the United States there is a cohort of investors that are targeting class B workforce housing assets in suburban or tertiary markets um, because those are strong cash flowing assets. But as far as looking here in in Australia, looking at major U.S. cities, it's very difficult to build workforce or affordable housing unless there's a tax credit program or some kind of government incentive to do so. Uh, So I, I think that's something that what we would see in the U.S. is there are different segments of the market that if there's incentives or subsidies or other programs in place, that incentivize development into that market, it can be done with public-private partnerships are a very popular thing in the United States. But you, I don't know that you would expect an Australian developer who's having to choose between a build-to-sell community and a build-to-rent community that, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, just wants to build an affordable or workforce-selling community. So, so does that mean, do you see government intervention, government action, government policy as a necessary condition to having a successful build-to-rent model, affordable or otherwise, even market rate housing? Is that an essential element? Can it be done without it? Or is that something we're going to have to look for here as the the advent of government action into the market in order to develop a market? I think it's something that will have to happen. And with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac being supported by the U.S. government, providing that stable debt capital into the market. And and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, their mission is to provide safe, affordable housing to Americans. Um, So it's with that government partnership that we see this, this program, this platform. So there are other programs, tax credits, other affordable programs that across the spectrum of affordability and social housing. So I think that it needs to be an open conversation and that the, you know, the partnership with the government has to exist to, to cover the spectrum and not start pigeonholing the build to rent sector in one place, which, you know, can lead to a struggle if, if the government 
you know, requires every development to include an affordability component is where things can get a little bit tricky. But a partnership and a conversation in programs, I think, are what you would need to have happen here. For institutional developers of multifamily product in the U.S., are they achieving returns on their capital equal to the developers of office product, retail product, industrial product, or for some reason are they accepting a significantly lower return because the risk profile is more attractive or something else? Because for our clients here in Australia, that is their concern, that this is just simply going to be a lower yield on their capital to build this type of product, and they'd be better off to build an industrial shed or an office tower. My understanding is that it's not the case. And, and, you know, the equity would be looking for about a 12% unlevered return. The development partner is looking for a 20-plus percent return. And I don't know exactly how that compares to some of the other asset classes, but I don't think we would see it as prolific and, and prevalent. Why would the investors do that if they're not making money on it? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, this diversifies the portfolios of the institutions it's very stable income. It's the highest risk-adjusted return of all the asset classes over a 3, 5, 7, 10, and 15-year hold. And it's the lowest volatility of so all the asset classes. So say that again. Classes. It's the highest risk-adjusted return over of all the asset classes all over asset. multiple hold so periods. So if you look at a time period of 1987 to 2016 and you analyze the rolling returns, risk-adjusted returns, for a 3, 5, 7, 10, and 15-year hold, multifamily has the highest risk-adjusted return and the lowest volatility of all the asset classes. And that was research done recently by the National Multifamily Housing Council. Let's talk about another side of the equation, and that is the customer experience, so to speak. So in the Australian model, obviously, you have a lot of build-for-sale product being built at all price points and quality ranges, that type of thing. But as a result, you end up with a lot of local and -and mom-and-pop investors owning those properties. Tell us about what is the U.S. institutional developer of a multifamily community? How is their tenant experience or their customer experience going to be different from what a young Australian couple starting their first household might experience here? It's interesting because it's very different. And I I think the first thing that we hear, and this came out of a lot of research done in the UK, which would be a similar mom and pop rental market as Australia, there's a lot of mistrust and almost animosity towards landlords. They don't have a surety of tenancy. They feel like no one ever responds. You could be a week if you try to get a hold of your landlord. You can't. It's very frustrating. So the whole industry around rental housing is frustrating. When I've toured people through properties and from overseas and they, they come through the hallways and they just turn and look at me and say, my God, it's so clean. I mean, the, the cleanliness of a multifamily property in the United States that's institutionally, professionally managed is shocking Uh, which is unnerving (laughs) in one way. You know, you think, my gosh, it should be clean at least. But when you you have a building in Melbourne or Sydney that has 300 units in it and it's managed by maybe 80 or 90 different property managers, you know, that maybe you can't get a hold of or don't really care or, or the mom and pop investor can't figure out who should come and fix your plumbing issue. And what about amenities too? Talk about amenities, whatever it might be, concierge. 
gyms. Sure. Pools. So that that all goes into that professional management. So now you move into the U.S. model. You have one manager for the whole building. You have maintenance people on site twenty four seven. You have a concierge on site twenty four seven. You have building security, and they will deliver your groceries. They will deliver your dry cleaning. You have an app on your phone where if something goes wrong in your apartment, you just log in a maintenance request. You're notified on your phone if you get a package delivery. You can connect with other residents on your phone in the community. You have wine tasting events that are taking place in the common areas on a weekly basis. You have the dog of the month club. You know, you have all of these amenities that you, you know, are, are make it feel more home. It's a more luxury experience than you It's would interesting. The, in the Australian market, the office sector might actually be a little bit ahead of the U.S. in that yep. regard. Yep. The office owners and developers today are very focused on tenant-customer experience, mm-hmm. yeah. but yet we don't have that same thing in the multifamily sector. Well, and, you, you know, and then put on your investor hat or your property manager hat, and we are not in this for entertainment, right? We're in this to make money and boost returns and occupancy and rental rates. Um, So there's a lot of theory that goes into this, a lot of studies that have gone into this, a lot of science that goes into this, and and there's a statistic that I I hope I don't misquote, that for every friend, a tenant makes, a resident makes in a multifamily property, they're 50% more likely to renew their lease. So this is building a community. This is boosting retention. This is boosting occupancy. This is saying, hey, if we get a group of people in this property that actually like to hang out with one another, they're going to stay longer, boosting retention, lowering CapEx on turnover, things like that. So there's a lot of theory that goes into it on that sense. But on the on the tenant, the resident, the community side, you've got a clean, really safe, very comfortable place to call home. I know as a tenant of a very expensive apartment, I have called my landlord, and he did not know a plumber to call about a particular issue. So between <laughs> us, we had to figure out who we might call to, to fix a leak. That <laughs> so is I, something that you don't want I to I empathize with that. Yeah. Okay, so if you look forward, look out three to five years, seeing what you've seen in the U.S., not that you've been involved for 35 or 40 years, but over that period of time, what do you see happening here? Where do you see the market going? What conditions do you think need to be present to be successful? And do you think the conditions are right here for this type of product to really take hold and grow? I do. Um, and I do have the benefit of being involved with our London team and our UK colleagues and, and colleagues in Dublin over the last six or seven years and watched that market emerge. The multifamily industry in the UK and Ireland is still in its infancy There's just now purpose-built multifamily coming out of the ground in the UK, but it's been years and years going through the same process that Australia is just embarking on. And from what I can tell, things might actually move quite a bit quicker than in the UK, which is a good thing. But what I can also tell is that the fundamentals and the demographics in Australia are perfect for multifamily investment. I do know of one U.S client of ours that that did commission a study uh, to try to identify markets globally that might be a good investment. They ran an algorithm to see where it might be good to invest for multifamily. And Australia actually had four of the five top markets for investment. And I think that lends to population growth here is extraordinary. From what I'm told, it's about 1.3 or 1.5%. And I, the U.S. is maybe 0.7%. So you have 
strong population growth, job growth, young, educated people, these are renters. The other thing they have going for you, which people don't always see as a positive, there's high barriers to home ownership. That's terrific for multifamily investors. Um, so if we're looking at investors that want to build rental product at good locations that are proximate to the city, maybe not in downtown Sydney or Melbourne, but proximate, proximate to transit, that are appealing, they're where people want to live, then I I think it could be um, a very uh, successful sector. There's a quote from our study that was done worldwide with millennials about what they think about homeownership. And in Australia or in Sydney, 66% of the respondents said they don't think they'll ever be able to purchase a home where they want to live. And that number was in the 40s in the U.S., so people really don't think they'll ever be able to live somewhere that they want to live. So this multifamily, quality housing, you know, it's clean, it's well-maintained, it's a good place to live, and it's where they want to be. Sometimes the local experts see things more clearly because they're here, they're in the market, their feet on the ground, they see it every day. But sometimes they also miss things because they don't see things changing, and, and often someone from the outside can come in and see things with new eyes and recognize opportunities that at times the local experts don't. Do you think we're at that inflection point in Australia when it comes to multifamily product? It's an interesting question because from the somewhere between 15 and 25 meetings that I've had over the last week in Melbourne and Sydney, there are so many organizations that are so positive about this sector. They're excited for the opportunity to work with the government to figure out how to make it work, to make it appealing and available for global investment into multifamily in the same way that there's global investment into all the other sectors in Australia. So I honestly think I've met more pro-multifamily investors on this trip than I have naysayers. So I think given that, given the the open-mindedness, given the um, sophisticated understanding of the sector that we've seen, and don't forget that you have superannuation funds that have invested billions, with a B, plural, into the U.S. multifamily market already. And they have different strategies from development to direct investment, and it's billions into U.S. multifamily. They understand it. They're not ready to do it in Australia yet, but you can imagine that if they're that comfortable with the sector, the existing market, once it starts to happen here and there starts to be some scale in this market, that they will probably want to invest in their own backyard with the superannuation funds. So last question is you've, um, you've been here for a week or so. You've met some of our top developers in the country. You've gotten a sense for the market. You've also had some time to explore both Sydney and Melbourne and see the beaches. Are you ready to move down, and have you picked out where you want to live yet? <laughs> I, I think I would have a very difficult time getting my husband to cross one ocean because he wouldn't cross another ocean the first time I asked. So I would be happy to move here. It's a fabulous place, but I, I've got to get back to my children and my husband. <laughs> Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. That's all for this edition of Tomorrow Matters Today. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about today's topic or get in touch, please visit us at cbre.com.au 
forward slash tomorrow matters today podcast.